Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 19, The Third Star. We finally made it to the third star on the Chicago flag. At 1893. This is a big year in Chicago. Of course, the first star being Fort Dearborn and the second star being the Great Chicago Fire. Those were tragedies and disasters. So this is something to celebrate, to be proud of. Definitely. And Patrick, we really lucked out while researching this because we got to talk to two amazing people, Jeff Nichols and Paul DeRica. Right. We had some great interviews with those guys about what it was like to visit the fair, what Chicago was like, its consequences. Those were both great interviews. And of course, let's just do a quick intro. Jeff Nichols is a author and historian and PhD candidate who writes prolifically for the Chicago Reader, and his articles are always fantastic. Definitely. Really good stuff. Well-researched. And then Paul DeRica has the best job ever. He is director of exhibits at the Newbury Library, one of my favorite places. And he's done a bunch of reenactments. We'll mention those. And he's also connected with the University of Chicago, two very different historians. And what's neat about their approaches is we're going to look at the fair from different angles. It's too big to just talk about casually. Which is why then we'll do this in three parts and intermix our interviews with Jeff and Paul. Right. And then, Chris, I know you're going to jump in as we get into the second and third episode. You've done a bunch of research on some other fascinating things that we didn't even scratch the surface on with Paul and Jeff so we can give the ferrets due and everything that was going on in 1893. Excellent. So I say... Patrick, let's just jump in. Let's do it. Uh, Jeff, I just want to say I have been reading you in the reader for a long time. Oh, thank you. Uh, When I see your articles in the reader, I literally snatch them out of my wife's hand. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, why don't we back up a little bit, Chris? Yeah. This is the Windy City Historians. We're recording on Zoom with Jeff Nichols. Chris Lynch is with me. Jeff, could you introduce yourself? Sure. I grew up in Davenport, Iowa. Sure. The Quad Cities. Yeah. I am an Iowa native. I went to the University of Iowa and with degree in history and English and concentration in creative writing and came to Chicago as a VISTA volunteer in the early 90s and had me work to travel cycle where I was backpacking a lot and eventually decided to settle down and go to grad school. So I am a student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I have been a grad student for a really long time. (laughs) Uh, so my concentration is um, Chicago history. I would like to think that I follow in the footsteps of a number of Chicago historians who come here from another place Mm -hmm. and become completely obsessed. You know, I consider myself a Chicagoan now through and through. I'd say the same thing because I grew up in the Midwest, mostly Youngstown, Ohio. And oh, yeah after some time on the East Coast, knew I wanted to be in a big city and in the Midwest and Chicago is it. Yeah. Then writing that book on Chicago Bridges and 
and then digging into the history to pick off the bridge stuff. Right. Uh, you know, I consider myself a Chicagoan now and love the history and having that little bit force for the trees, I think is a helpful perspective. Mm -hmm. But then I like where Chris comes from, where he's a native Chicagoan and can speak to some of the history of like, what parish were you from? I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do a lot of posting on Forgotten Chicago, for example. And a lot of folks who are there brings up these great memories for them. And sometimes I just read the threads and it's like, oh yeah, I did not grow up here. I don't have the same sort of, you know, yes, I watched the Bozo show on WGN. Yeah. And, you know, I know the commercials, but it's not exactly the same for me. So. Yeah, the Empire commercials. Are... Yes. Yeah, and Dan and Jake and Patrick, we've gotten to know over the years playing around with our history stuff and the Windy City Historians, too. So they're, that's a great... Mm -hmm. It is a fantastic site. Sorry, Chris, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say I wish I was a historian like Jeff when I was 10 years old because when I was 10 years old, there was a Memorial Day... And there was a gentleman there who was in his 90s, and he had been with Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War in Cuba. Oh, wow. And this was probably 1976, 77. And I realize now, Jeff, this gentleman standing right next to me was probably at the World's Fair in 1893. Uh-huh. He would have been 10 years old himself. I think he was like 93 or something. And again, I didn't have the wherewithal to say, hey, mister, tell me about the World's Fair because I was 10. Right. But it's weird that I probably, I'm assuming he went because he was from Chicago. So I met a man that was at the World's Fair. I'm middle-aged now, but that kind of startles me that I could shake someone's hand who had been on the Ferris wheel. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were 10 years old. Right, right. Um, I definitely understand that, I don't know, this sounds hacky, but as you get older, you just realize the mm -hmm. passage of time. Yeah. There's a, you know, a limited amount of time you have to talk to people. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and had I had the wherewithal or been a precocious young man, you know, I probably would have annoyed this guy with my questions, uh -huh. but it's kind of a just passing of the narrative from one generation to the next right which is exciting and that just also proves that the world's fair wasn't that long ago it seems like it was long ago but again i met a man that probably was there so it's not that far away sure yeah it's within a few lifetimes i also have a theory jeff and if if this is crazy just tell me but if if influence was heat I would say when the White City was started on May 1st, 1893, it was white hot. I mean, it would have been like lava temperature-wise. I would argue mm -hmm. that in 2020, the heat still emanates from that fair, so much so that if it was a sidewalk, it would melt snow in the winter. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. I mean, there's... So it's remarkable. I don't think it's quite the same relationship as, say... St. Louis and their fair in 1904, where there's like a, a sense of it being the high point of the city. Definitely agreed. So many buildings on the south side were built to accommodate visitors. So even our remaining built environment, the spectacle, which was really only a few months long, mm -hmm. is still with us to this day. So, Jeff, we talked Paul DeRica, who edited the annotated book Chicago by Day and Night, The Pleasure Seeker's Guide. With uh, Bill Savage, right? That's With right. Bill Savage, yeah. And we were talking to Paul about it. I mean, the whole impetus of the event was to mark the arrival of Columbus in the Americas, which is interesting because the fair actually opens in 1893, whereas we always think of 1492 being the date, uh, but there were many reasons too complicated to go into as to why the fair's opening was pushed back. I mean, basically, I think they needed more time, right? I mean, that's the short answer. Right, they need more time, that was it. Yeah. And it's all happening to mark 
the 400th anniversary of, of Columbus's arrival in the New World, announced the United States on the world stage. So, uh, you know, at the World's Fair, like 46 different countries were represented in different ways and had different buildings. All 48 states at the time were there. So it was just this immense, this immense experience. The people that built the fair, I believe mm-hmm. one of those people was Eliza's Disney, mm-hmm. who was a carpenter and he used to tell his son, Walt, all about the fair and how great it was. But I mean, I think Disney's father is a good example of one of those people who worked on the fair and all the sort of skilled labor that went into it. So you had iron workers, you had carpenters, you had glaziers, you know, doing glass work. You had all the people who were doing all the ornamental work on the exterior of the buildings. All the plaster work and yeah. Right. So a lot of women artists worked on on the exterior of the buildings. So Laredo Taft, who's a sculptor who lived in Chicago and produced works that still you can find all over the city. His studio and a lot of his apprentices were women. They kind of worked on on the exterior of a lot of these buildings. So when you think about all of the the skill and and labor that that went into the fair, and, and keeping in mind too that pretty much all of that happened between like 1891 and 1893, they basically built an entire second city within a city. I mean, it's really impressive. And they worked all year round too. So there were all sorts of challenges having to to try to move construction forward in the midst of a Chicago. We talked earlier about how the Chicago summer can be uncomfortable, but a Chicago winter isn't much better, particularly if you're trying to build an immense structure. And so there's, you know, stories about like, you know, anxiety around some of these massive structures are the roofs going to cave in when the snow starts to come down. So there were people, you know, who were just hired to be kind of shoveling constantly, say, on the, the roof of the Manufacturing Little Arts Building, which is one of the massive structures in the Court of Honor. There, I remember coming across newspaper accounts where people were worried that, you know, the snow and the ice was going to pile up and then cause the, the roof to cave in. So people had to be constantly vigilant with that, right, or de-icing things so that they could work using hot water and other things to kind of keep the fair moving forward. And there were labor disputes, just like what were happening in Chicago at the time. So you had a lot of skilled workers, carpenters, iron workers, people like that. And, you know, they had some, some trade unions existed. And there were a couple of times where the work on the fair slowed down because people went on strike because of poor working conditions in the winter or other problems. So it's, it's kind of fascinating to just look at how this whole thing came into being. And the fact that it did truly impressive which I think is why we're still fascinated by it today. And my understanding is that that area, that land there was really swampy Mm -hmm. and not very inviting. And that whole area was transformed landscape wise. And Mm -hmm. with the digging of the lagoons, it gave them, I guess, fill to raise the land and create something that's really usable. That's right. I mean, Jackson Park had been a park and it had been designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, who is best remembered today for his work on New York Central Park. But Olmsted had been kind of working on it in, in the late 1860s, early 1870s, and then the Great Chicago Fire happens. And then at that point in time where Jackson Park is, wasn't part of the city of Chicago, it was its own township. The Hyde Park, was it its, its own? Yeah, it wouldn't get annexed until 1889. Mm-hmm. So the story goes that the plans for the parks because um, Olmsted was also working on Washington Park, which was to the west of Jackson Park and the Midway Plaisance connects the two, which is this kind of mile long strip of grass. But, you know, Olmsted done all of this work and then the plans were actually, you know, within Chicago in the city and that they burned up in the fire and then things just got delayed. And so he doesn't return to it really until the time of the World's Fair. And you're right, they have to basically completely redo the park in order to prepare it to, to be the, the fairgrounds, which in its own right is this immense effort to kind of move all the land, to drain it, to build it up, then to landscape it, which Olmsted has a hand in. And then after, you know, the fair closes in October of 1893, turning it back into a park and into the sort of park that we know today took a lot of effort as, as well. I learned from your book that you could take the Illinois Central from downtown to the fair and you get off at South Park, and that was the cheapest option. But you mentioned in your footnotes, there's no mention of the Alley L, which is the Green Line today. Mm-hmm. I it, They just didn't mention it, and it was built specifically for the fair. That's right. 
So it's kind of interesting. It's like, did they just not, did they just forget or it just did, didn't notice the editor just blanked on it or something? Probably. I mean, and also I think, I mean, I don't even, I mean, depending on where they were in the production of, of the book, whether or not it would have been present and operating at that time. But you're right. I mean, the LEL traces its, you know, beginnings to the World's Fair. You could take the Illinois Central Railroad. Some people even traveled by boat. So, you know, there were yes. boats that left at basically what was the foot of Van Buren Street in the loop and then would take you down to the Jackson Park area and you could dock. That's probably the way to go, I think, if you took the ferry. As far as seeing the ferry from what looked like an ocean, when you look at the photographs, they really are astounding. Yeah, you could always go by carriage, too. I mean, there were lots of different ways to, to get there. Back to Jeff Nichols. And I think in some of my guidebooks, there was a recommendation of uh, taking a boat there. You know, to see it from the water. And the boats could hold a thousand people, which is, I mean, that's pretty amazing. And I'm sure that they ran all the time. Yeah. Even today, that happens. I'll have people come in from out of town and being a, a sailor and having some friends with boats, I'll often try to get them out on the water because the view of the city from the water is always impressive. I'm sure the White City was the same, particularly if it was at night with all the electricity that was a very novel concept then. Mm-hmm. Right. And flipping back to our interview with Paul Derica. And then lots of people were just staying close to the fairgrounds. So, I mean, to reference Midway Plaisance again, you know, the neighborhood on, on the south side of that wooden lawn, I mean, there were all of these hotels and things that were built you know, smaller hotels just for fair visitors. Well, there's one infamous smaller hotel that you reference, the H.H. Holmes's hotel. But yes, I mean, that would have been, you know, one of the many structures that was kind of built to kind of capitalize on like all the people coming to Chicago for this. So, you know, over 27 million people, you know, paid admittance to, to the World's Fair, which was a huge number. Which, interestingly enough, we just got done with our podcast on Haymarket. It opened on May 1st or, or May Day, which Americans don't really know about, but Europeans celebrate. So Jane Adams was there on May 1st, 1893, when President Grover Cleveland formally opened the fair and someone like stole her purse in the midst of the crowd. And then it closed on to October 30th of 1893. Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. To give people a sense of the timing. And I, I saw a note where the it was June 21st when the Ferris wheel actually opened. Right. So the fair, yeah, the Ferris wheel wasn't ready at the start. And that's the, the other thing about the World's Fair is, I mean, this was an, an immense endeavor. So, I mean, the fairgrounds were, you know, over 600 acres. Mm-hmm. There were over 200 structures that were built, including the 14 massive structures that made up what were called the Court of Honor, which were these kind of neoclassical buildings that had a different theme like agriculture or mines and mining or manufacturing attached to them. Jeff, how did you get interested in the World's Fair? Well, it's, it's sort of an unavoidable topic in Chicago history. Yeah. And so the piece that I, I wrote for the Chicago Reader on tourist advice for visiting the fair, the actual genesis for that was finding this strange bilingual German-English guidebook Hmm. and it being packed with all sorts of advice it made me realize that I didn't quite understand Chicago in 1893 in a very practical way yeah like as a tourist visiting a a place right so along the lines of oh you know if you come here you know it's great to know English but you could get by with only German Right. I obviously knew there was a huge German population here. That's what I do for, you know, the First World War. But I just kind of found that astounding, even though when I read it, it's like I I completely understood. This was a language that educated Americans spoke. There's a huge 
immigrant first generation population that knew German. I just thought, oh, wow. And I would go through this and reading about advice, like trying to explain what a cow catcher was, you know, or <laughs> how American trains work or little things about sniffy put downs that you read in tourist books. Like you can go to a beer garden in Chicago, but you know, it's not really, it's not really, yeah. it's, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not Germany. I was in Germany last September and visiting some friends who had moved there. Mm -hmm. And so for that week, we went to a beer garden almost every night. Yeah. Because it's a great culture and the food's inexpensive. It's usually reasonably priced and, mm -hmm. and pretty good. And you can have a beer and it's very social and you can sit outside and see mm -hmm. usually a nicer part of the countryside where they put those. So the U.S. doesn't quite get that. There's no televisions, of course. And right. it's a very much of a family social gathering to just hang out, which is really really nice yeah and the other thing is a sort of a class element of people who are reading this guidebook could afford to take a trip from germany yeah and back and stay at nice hotels so yeah there certainly was a class aspect to it as well so right jeff in your article you talk about how much money you could either get gouged with or spend at the fair. And you give an example of a man who was going to just go first class through the fair. It's kind of a fun yeah. story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was. And uh, didn't he spend about uh, almost a thousand dollars in 2020s yeah. money? I have the article right in front of me. Yeah, it was something like $855 to be carried or to go around in gondolas and pushed by rolling chairs and to buy all of the different swag like catalogs and guidebooks yeah it's a pretty expensive day it was kind of funny i was doing a little research and one of the books that i looked at had an illustration and there's somebody in one of those rolling chairs and at first glance you think oh it was nice they had it accessible for the handicapped uh -huh. and then you know you dig into it a little further and like wait that doesn't quite look like a wheelchair it's more like a Mm -hmm. two-seater with large wheels, almost like a rickshaw with then somebody pushing from behind instead of pulling from in front. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there were people getting ripped off, too. I mean, the pickpockets probably made a great living that week. Some of the newspaper accounts I read really emphasized how going at the beginning of the fair, visitors, particularly international visitors, really felt ripped off because the competition for lodging hadn't really kicked in. You know, the entire tourist marketplace really was a seller's paradise. There was many more than just one guidebook or a number of articles about, first, don't go to this place and strut around in fancy clothes, mm -hmm. because if you go you might end up muddying your clothes. <laughs> I remember to bring galoshes. And second, do not make yourself a target for pickpockets. Just don't do that. This is good advice to any traveler, even today. Yeah, the one I certainly try to follow as well. Well, I saw some pictures on the Library of Congress mm -hmm. of opening day, just the throngs. People were packed shoulder to shoulder front and back for those looked like there was thousands at that opening ceremony in may mm -hmm. and they had pictures from both perspectives from looking at the speakers from the crowd and then looking back at the crowd from the speaker's point of view and it was just throngs of people it was amazing bowler hats and you know the dress and everything right and, you know, when we see those pictures, we just think, oh, I wish I, you know, I wish I could, I had been there. And then you read some newspaper accounts of like, wow, that those crowds were just no fun. <laughs> you know, it's right. just being in those crowds, just you can't, we couldn't see anything. And we just, we really felt like we were gouged. And oh, yeah, the, 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 the fair was great. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine the vendors were just getting warmed up too. 
Mm-hmm. Jeff? Yeah. Can you imagine wearing the fashion? Can you imagine how unbelievably uncomfortable they must have been on an August day? Yeah, it's something that I think about when people see historical photos and they look at the fashion. On the one hand, I understand it completely. You know, it's just the love of the, you know, what looks like is elegant care and presentation. But on the other hand, as a guy who sweats a lot, (laughs) I'm really glad that I live in the t-shirt age. Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I'm not the kind of person who wears a t-shirt and shorts in a church or something like that, but I get it. On the other hand, yeah, I just think of how incredibly hot it would be. Well, yeah, as a man, the uniform of the day is is a suit, right? So, yeah. And I hate wearing a tie that I haven't had to for ages and ages. And I can't imagine that. And then a sports coat over the top and slacks and, yeah. No, thank you. Well, how about this? I picked up this book called World Fair's Notes. It's by Marion Shaw. She was a a woman journalist who covered the fair. And the first thing Marion Shaw talks about is the rumble of the Alley L. Now, she entered the fair from the north side as they walked in the fair. And I think she might have gone to the Midway Plaisance first because she's very blunt how people just stank. She said... Ethnological students might find here much to interest them, but it would be well for all visitors to this primitive encampment to follow the example of the Cossacks when they attack the garlic-eating French battalions, stuff their nostrils with clay. I mean, she just said they stunk. Yeah, yeah. I know there are possibly be people who are listening to this and think, well, okay, right, you know, it, it looks uncomfortable and it looks like it's hot, but it's not quite as hot as it looks. It's just the same. It's hotter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is a day before there's antiperspirant or deodorant. I mean, there's perfume. Right. But right. perfume was used to like, cover. <laughs> yeah, and then these guidebooks would also mention okay, these are places you could get a bath. This hotel has a bath. Uh, otherwise, you'll have to go to, a, you know, there are public baths here or there, but yeah. Now, Jeff, in your article, you talk about how some of the tourists who hated Chicago, like the man from Scotland that you reference, yeah. even though they might have loathed Chicago, they couldn't get enough of the auditorium theater for some reason. Mm-hmm. They just thought this was the yeah. greatest. Right. The Auditorium Theater, the Masonic Temple. Yes. Those were two highlights, even for people who really hated Chicago itself. And for folks not familiar with Chicago, those were away from the fair. The fair was down on the south side near Jackson Park, mostly. Mm-hmm. And then those were more downtown. Right. Several miles north. And Jeff, why don't you read to us what the Wagga Wagga advertisers said about... Oh, yes. Yeah. So... The Wagga Wagga advertiser uh, talked about going to the Masonic Temple and taking the elevator because the express elevators gave the sensation um, as if all the breath were being driven out of your body. So it's (laughs) kind of like its own kind of carnival ride to take the elevator at the Masonic Temple. And that was at Randolph and State, I learned from your article. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the elevator being a very new invention to allow us to have skyscrapers in Chicago in the first place, right? Yeah, and it was a relatively new building as well. I also was interested that you mentioned there was also dining options for women only. So like Mrs. Clark's Lunchroom, Mm -hmm. a restaurant that only seated women and was noted for the excellent food and the reasonable rates. And perhaps this was a class thing at the time where maybe a unmarried woman might feel more comfortable unescorted you know exactly going with a sister or a mother to the city it's hard for us in our age to think in terms of the mores of that time mm-hmm. but well i imagine a married woman as well right and she could go with her daughter and then they could go ahead and have an outing but then where do they get lunch and you'd want to go someplace that was safe and comfortable right 
I, I don't think I put this well, in my article, but there were newspaper articles basically warning if your uh, unescorted daughter goes to Chicago and ends up in the wrong side of town or ends up being picked up by the wrong man, you know, she'll be lost. Her virtue. Basically putting your daughter at risk if you let her go to the fair unescorted. You mean like running into H.H. Holmes, perhaps? (laughs) Oh, more along the lines of running into someone who would impress her into a life of prostitution. That would be the main danger there. Now, in your research, Jeff, did you find any accounts from, like, for example, Iowa, where you grew up, about what it was like to see the Court of Honor lit up at night? It was astounding for city folk, like people from London. But imagine what it was like for somebody coming from, like, a small town, farm town, from Nebraska. I came across a diary, and I'd like to think it was from the Midwest, but I can't remember where. But, you know, the descriptions of the fair, they weren't really poetic, but it's just like, oh, it's astounding. It's great. It's fantastic. It's lovely. You know, that kind of level of description, just the amazement, the light of the fair. So you were from New York City. You may not have been as impressed, but certainly if you were from small town America, that must have been overwhelming. Right. To see it at night lit up with, you have the spotlights as well. I think that's one aspect of the fair that we can relate to because even seeing the pictures of the fair at night lit up, you know, we've spent our whole lives seeing buildings that are illuminated. It looks fantastic. I think it's pretty easy to at least imagine the wonderment of seeing these buildings lit up. Well, it's like a Christmas tree. I mean, we've all seen Christmas trees, right? In downtown Chicago, when they flick the switch, everybody goes, wow. You know, it's just, well, yeah. and it, it gets you every time. And I can imagine that that's must have been what it was like, like a big giant Christmas display, uh, the white lights. Well, you imagine the spotlights brought me back to, as a kid, when there was maybe like a carnival or a state fair. You know, if there's an event that was going to pop up that was going to be big and they want to attract people, they'd take the spotlights mm-hmm. and then move them through, yeah. you know, the sky. And as kids, you'd see this beam of light that was moving across the clouds or in the atmosphere. And you'd think, well, God, what is that? You know, because you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have a way to find out, well, what are all the events going on? There was no Google to look up. And so even if you were maybe a little bit older than I was at that time, and you were driving around, you might just like, well, let's drive over there and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that would help attract a crowd. And I can imagine a similar kind of thing with the World's Fair. If you hadn't read the newspapers and were a farmer just happening to come into town, you're going to be like, well, what is going on over there? And you might just wander over to see, right? The spectacle. I remember those lights when I was a kid too, Patrick. You would see those spotlights at a premiere of a movie or something. Yeah. The same thing was used in those Batman comics, right? When the commissioner needed, you know, they'd say, turn on the bat light, right? And it was a big spotlight on the top of Gotham City and would mm-hmm. go across <laughs> the sky. And then that would be the signal for Batman to come rolling in with Robin. Right. Yeah. Jeff, in your research, did you run across this book, An Early Encounter with Tomorrow by um, Arnold Lewis? I did not. This is really an interesting book. It's Foreigner's Accounts of the World's Fair. And oh. it, it, it's the winner of the Jacques Barzan Prize in Cultural History. And I was reading it, and what was really interesting is one of the visitors from France who had been to the 1889 Paris exhibition, which, of course, that's where the Eiffel Tower debuted. Mm-hmm. That was their, mm-hmm. you know, great monument to the, their fair. And they came to Chicago and they were struck at how big the Columbian Exposition was because the Paris Fair was pretty compact, which I thought was interesting. And the Jackson Park thing was like a one square mile or something like that. And they were astounded at how Americans use space 
in relation to the to the city because of course the city was i believe six or seven miles north of jackson park and they just couldn't get they couldn't get their head around how immense the space was yeah that's really unsurprising and i mean it's still something that visitors from europe marvel at you know when i've taken mm-hmm. guests from europe to i don't know the south side for example <laughs> yeah and just amazed at how the city just keeps going and going and going and going but that doesn't surprise me at all and a friend that's moved down by bridgeport and he's just west of canal street mm-hmm. tucked in by 18th right in that area and chicago's like that there's all these little pockets of neighborhoods that you know i'd driven past there on 18th street or canal street but never wandered into one of those side streets and all these little neighborhoods throughout Chicago. And the city is so big, they're all over the place, and you just don't get to know these neighborhoods unless you have a friend that lives there, you happen to visit there, you live there yourself. And it is a very sprawling town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then having visited Europe, their intense use of space, kind of like you turn around to the bathroom and you're going to wipe your ass basically. Cause it's, it, it's a fairly tight space typically. And you know, some of the hotel rooms <laughs> or things like that. Yeah. You just don't know how to use the bidet. Yeah. Why would they put a water fountain so low? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So I have a question for you, Jeff, if you could go back in time sure. and visit the fair, having done all the research you did, could you describe a day that you'd want to spend at the fair and what you'd want to see? That's a good question. Well, I try. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the thing for me, and this sounds like a terrible answer, but I personally would try to spend half the day at the fair and then another half wandering Chicago itself. Sure. But let's say you had two days. One, you can wander Chicago. You got the whole day at the fair. What are you going to do, right? Okay. I think I would not want to get lost in the sorts of exhibits kind of sense of like, oh, I can see that in the Field Museum. I have seen that at the field anyway, so I don't need to see this again. (laughs) A lot of it would be just trying to do a lot of walking, seeing the the movable sidewalk. Mm-hmm. That would be one. Yeah, like how do those compare to the ones at O'Hare? They're so modern to see that first versions of something like that would be cool. Yeah. One of the things I would want to see, and this sounds a little strange, I wrote an article for Chicago Magazine about the strange second life of the Delaware House. The Delaware House was the state of Delaware's exhibit. Yeah. And after the fair was over, the building was purchased by, how to describe Ellis Bennett, this ornery kind of a grizzled frontiersman and he took this house and transported it by barge to Wolf Lake. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so this was one of the like, small number of buildings that survived afterwards that you know was transported somewhere else. So sort of preserved then. Yeah, he took this building to Wolf Lake and more or less set up this hunting lodge. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to take a gander of this because I did all of this research on this really strange frontiersman who lived in part of Chicago, which, you know, was then like wilderness and a swamp, mm-hmm. a place where people would go to hunt that eventually was transformed into industrial wilderness that we know today. In the end, this guy had basically a standoff with the law because he dumped this house on Wolf Lake, but he didn't really purchase the land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a squatter. And yeah, he was a squatter. And the Knickerbocker Ice Company 
claimed the land. And so there was more or less an overnight standoff with the law to evict him from his house. And the house was basically a crumbling ruin and demolished in the, the 50s. So that would be like my one weird... Yeah. Gotta see the inside of this house. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a parallel to Cap Streeter, too, a little bit, right? Yes. And yeah, a, a parallel to Cap Streeter. He was the South Side version of Cap Streeter and also was a favorite of the press as local weirdo. Mm. Also, at the time, he, he was a connection to a kind of pioneer past. Yeah. That really resonated with Chicagoans at the turn of the century. Because there was at least one or two log cabins constructed at the fair. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to see that. I want to see the Illinois house in all of its crowing glory. I would want to see the Iowa house just, you know, as a native son. Well, Jeff, you gave me the perfect segue here because in this book by the female journalist, Marion Shaw, he describes the Iowa house. And as a Hawkeye, you would appreciate it. She said it was one of the greatest buildings there. And she said... Jeff's pumping his fists here on, on Zoom. She called it the wonderful corn palace, formed entirely of grain, artistically arranged in frescoes, arches, columns, friezes, and pavilions. There are base reliefs of agricultural designs done in grass and grains, fantastic forms, graceful scroll work, mythological figures, monuments and statues entirely composed of grain, of corn, wheat, oats, and various kinds of seeds. The only architectural product which the artist had failed to make use of is the potato, but that was Idaho's job. It's fun to read about these houses. Yeah, okay, so I have a soft spot for that. What else I'd want to see would be kind of the greatest hits. Definitely the transportation building, the electricity building, uh, the administrative building. Those I would definitely would want to be there at night. I would want to take a gondola ride. Yeah, I think that would be my checklist. But I have this feeling it's like of being eight or nine years old and being told, okay, you're going to go to Adventureland. Um <laughs> which was the you know, the Iowa amusement park. It's like, okay, I'm going to go write this and write this and write this. And then when you get there, you're just kind of like, ah. So to be perfectly honest with you, I, you know, a lot of it would just be people watching. Sure. This leads me to my question, Jeff. If you could meet three or four people at the fair, who would it be? And I'll lead off. I would want to meet a young Franklin Roosevelt, because he went there as a tourist. Oh, yeah. And I would want to meet his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, who wanted to camp out on the Wooded Island. And, of course, I would love to meet Daniel Burnham and also maybe Frederick Douglass. I would definitely want to meet Frederick Douglass, who was there, of course. I think he gave a very famous speech at the fair also. Frederick Douglass would be the one person... Like the top of my list. I'm trying to think of who else. Well, you had Carter Harrison, you had Potter Palmer, any other great Chicago figures? Louis Sullivan. Oh, right. Yes. Mm. Yes. I'd have a drink with him. <laughs> He'd probably go on about how pissed off he was that, you know, this throwback architecture rather than looking forward, right? <laughs> right. But who knows? I'm sure it'd be interesting that, in any case, talking to an architect, they're always fascinating to chat with. Well, he also did the door, I think, to the transportation building, which is pretty yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is that the one building they gave Louis Sullivan to design, which was very modern? Yeah. Um, it was just yeah. the door, I think. Yeah. I think it was just the door. The door is yeah. like phenomenal. Oh, man. What about Buffalo Bill? Would you want to meet him? Oh, yeah. Okay. I would have to meet Frederick Douglass, Louis Sullivan, and Buffalo Bill because Buffalo Bill, part of his childhood was in LeClaire, Iowa, which is not far from Davenport. And there's a really nice Buffalo Bill Museum in LeClaire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely Buffalo Bill. 
Can you describe his association with the fair and how that, what he did for the listeners? Oh, I'm trying to remember exactly which shows he had side of the fair. They wouldn't let him in the fair, right. so he set up shop, I think, south of the fair right. in the park. Yeah. And then they wound up regretting mm-hmm. it because he sold so many tickets that the yeah. fair commissioners were kicking themselves. Yeah. Apparently those reenactments that he would do of battles, the uh, cavalry and the Indians were pretty interesting. And then they'd have what Annie Oakley would have been there probably doing some uh, rifle sharpshooting tricks. Trying to think who else was in his... So Sitting Bull might have been there or not. I don't know if Sitting Bull was still alive at that point. No, he had died, but he had, I think some of the Indians who were at the Little Bighorn were with him. I believe they would reenact Custer and the Battle of Little Bighorn, which, I mean, that would have been very interesting to see. Yeah. He performed that show for, I think, Queen Victoria, and she was delighted. Hmm. Yeah, there's a ton of people that would have gone through that fair that would have been probably fascinating to talk with. It would be tough to choose any two or three. There's a book for you, Jeff. Famous people that were at the fair. That would be a very interesting book. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who else. How about Mr. Marshall Fields? Uh, this is a really good question, but I'm just sort of... Well, we ambushed you um, with the questions, so... No, that's fine. Maybe like Bathhouse John Coughlin or... <laughs> yeah, the other character I would want to see would be Johnny Powers. Hmm. I don't know him. What Describe him. What's the... As sort of the arch enemy of Jane Addams and was also notoriously corrupt. Like another captain of industry, Samuel Insull would be kind of nice to talk to. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, And how about Thomas Edison and Nicholas Tesla? They were at the fair. Yeah, Tesla definitely. Yeah, yeah. Sure. That's the thing about it. It was like a convention of the most famous people in the world at the time. Just incredible. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, heading over to the Midway and just wondering how the other people who came from around the world, what they thought of this entire spectacle. Yeah, not to mention those international exhibits that were going on too from each of the various countries. That would be, those would be amazing to see. That would be great. Well, some of them would be sad. Like I know that the Krupp company had their giant guns at the fair and World War I wasn't that far off in the future. So some of the people that observed these giant guns on display thought, well, those are really scary looking. And unfortunately, that impulse for war just continued on into the future. So some of it would be a little uh, foreboding. Sure. Or going to the Germany building, which was survived, just thinking of that turn of history. I guess going back to the beginning of our conversation where you have a city in which people could get by in German (laughs) and then realizing that a generation later, how things would change dramatically for German immigrants, for the perception of Germany and the United States. And meanwhile, in, in your article, you talk about how you checked the census, which I thought was brilliant. And, Chicago was 98 point something percent white, Anglo-Saxon. We hadn't had the great migration yet. Right. And then there was a, because I want to get the exact figure right. It's an underutilized resource. In 1914, Chicago schools did a census. And... One of these days, uh, I need to go to the CPS archives and ask if they have anything that survives the census. But it's a really phenomenal breakdown of the nationalities in Chicago. And I realize that it's 20 years later after the fair. But, you know, when you read, like, in 1914, there were only... 242 immigrant or first-generation Mexicans in Chicago. And just realizing that, that how tiny that population was. 
1914, a really, really small group. And you have a city in which the fair, Mm -hmm. the Latino population is really, really, really tiny in Chicago. And then just how white Chicago was at the time, it's, it's a little hard to get your head around. Yeah. The shift in demographics from today versus... And Jeff, how were African Americans treated at the fair? You know, there's the story of Ida B. Wells, who was visiting Frederick Douglass, and they went to a restaurant which didn't serve blacks, and really only, you know, only really got service when the owner recognizes mm. Frederick Douglass. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it was a situation in which, which isn't surprising, where locals felt like, oh, this is so much better than the South. And yet, in so many different ways, African-Americans were treated as second class. Mm-hmm. Your article alludes to that, that there was a as they would say in that era, a colored only section of the theater that cost three times as much as the white section of the theater African-Americans had to sit in at a vaudeville house. Right, yeah. Yeah. Now, this isn't the Jim Crow South, but I was kind of shocked when I read that. Yeah, and then just the fact that, again, restaurant owners and innkeepers could just decide no service. No, you can't right. stay here. And wasn't there a, you know, every every ethnicity had their own day. Like there would be a German day or a Polish day. Wasn't there also a, an African-American day, although they didn't call it that? I just looked that up in August on, I believe, the 25th at the Columbian Exposition. It was Colored American Day was what they called it. But remember, Frederick Douglass could not come in. He had to come in with the, the Haitian delegation. Yeah. He, he didn't come in as a, as part of a state or a, a United States representative. The day in which Frederick Douglass spoke. His famous speech. Yeah. To share with you this letter by the Honorable Frederick Douglass on Haiti at the World's Fair in Jackson Park, Chicago, January 2nd. 1893. My subject is Haiti, the Black Republic. I am to speak to you of her character, her history, her importance and her struggle from slavery to freedom and to statehood of the hearing of bearing of her example as a free and independent republic upon what may be the destiny of the African race in our own country and elsewhere. Her proximity alone. That was Ozzie Davis, a famous actor, reciting the speech that was given by Frederick Douglass in Jackson Park, January 2nd, as part of the Haitian delegation. That's when they dedicate the Haitian pavilions you know, you got to build these things before you can have a fair. So his rendition of it kind of gives us a, a chance to imagine what being in the presence of Frederick Douglass must have been like. Right, because, of course, there's no recording of him at that time right. that, that, that survives. So it's back to the interview. I've been meaning to read that new book, that biography of Douglass that came out oh, last year. By a Blight, yeah. Yeah, because I, I bet you there's some good World's Fair stuff in there. Yeah, there should be. I hope so. Yeah. I know Chicago Day was October 9th. Here's the other book I have, Jeff. It's it's the actual program from Uh, Chicago Day, uh, which was October 9th, which... Oh, yeah. Had I chosen, I would have gone with the fire anniversary. Yeah, yeah. And I guess this also gets to another point, which is bracing yourself for some really appalling exhibits in which non-whites are treated like anthropological curiosities and 
getting ready to to absorb a great deal of racism through the exhibits and through the attractions of the midway. I think that would be really cringe, cringeworthy for sure. And then, yeah, yeah. Cringeworthy, really cringeworthy. Although wasn't it true that because of art and culture, you could have belly dancers perform because it was a cultural phenomenon. Whereas if they were doing this Mm -hmm. down on state street or in the levy district, they'd be arrested. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I I might want to pass on that. So (laughs) quite all right. So just one last thought, Jeff is the world's fair of 1893. Is it still relevant to Chicago wins today? I mean, it's more than relevant. I think just to understand the city, you have to understand the world's fair to understand the built environment. You have to understand the world's fair. It is still relevant today. Warts and all. And how the city's laid out. Right. Yeah. And your article does a great job of demonstrating that. And we'll link that to our webpage, but keep up the good work, Jeff. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. We love your yeah, articles. Thank you. Oh, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Jeff. Take care. Really enjoyed it. Nice meeting you, you too. Bye-bye. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. A fantastic interview, Patrick, about the Columbian Exposition. Absolutely. Paul DeRica is going to be the focus of the next one, and we leave you with an excerpt of us talking to Jeff about his great influenza article. Right, because it was not the first time we've relied upon Jeffrey for our podcast. Right, right. right. Little did he know, but in any event, it's a cool kind of little background to how some of these podcasts come about and a reference to our Don't Sneeze, Spit, or Cough special episode. Patrick and I leaned on you a little bit. Your article on the Fort Sheridan influenza outbreak from earlier this year was just fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. The article on Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) That started in the early 90s as an undergrad history honors thesis. Wow. A bunch of research from that article. The really good stuff comes from National Archives in Washington, D.C. And I was thinking about incorporating that as my dissertation, but I decided it wasn't going to work. Well, I must say, we cribbed a lot from that for our episode on the influenza outbreak, which Mm -hmm. was called, appropriately enough, Don't Sneeze, Cough, and Spit. John Dale Robertson, yes. Yeah. one of our most popular podcasts, believe it or not. And Mr. Robertson was a great health commissioner, I thought. Um, Yeah, considering his reputation as a quack, (laughs) before he actually stepped into office, you know, I thought his performance during the actual epidemic, if anything, he was really good at at just management. Mm -hmm. He was really great at that. Seemed like he was kind of a steady hand. Yeah, not necessarily the greatest medical mind of his time, but if anything, the last few months has taught us it's those sorts of management skills are really important in an epidemic. Right. It's funny, when you wrote that piece a few years ago, you probably thought, well, I won't be uh, needing this pandemic information anymore because Um, that was 100 years ago. On to the next thing. Yes and no. I mean, when I wrote it, I put a lot of work into it. But on the other hand, all of that research that I did made me aware that these sorts of epidemics are inevitable. Mm -hmm. It's strange because all of these great journalists who are writing about the epidemic... They just didn't have access to the archives. Right. Diaries and letters, uh, artifacts from the health department. They, they just didn't have that available. 
and I had done that research. It's serendipity, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. I mean, you. To be perfectly honest with you, I would trade in that serendipity. <laughs> I kind of wish there wasn't a killer uh, pandemic <laughs> uh, this year. That that would be. I wish I had a magic wand for that. But thank you very much. To give it. Well, our sentiments exactly. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.